0: Hello everybody and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean-Paul Wright. This week, our guest is a really lovely man and fabulous flute player whom I first met, ooh, it must be several years ago now, Dr. Rick Noyce. An altars flutes performing artist, he's had a varied and visible career as a professional musician, university professor and is a certified life coach. He is also a co-founder and faculty member of Whole Musician, a team of specially certified musicians who empower performers to realise their full artistic power and expression. Who empower performers to realise their full artistic power and expression. Along with his many musical and academic accomplishments, Dr Noyce has been coaching people's lives for nearly 20 years and is a certified life coach by the International Coach Federation. Specialising in working with performing artists, he has coached several hundreds of people from all walks of life with time management, productivity, creative blocks, stage fright and performance anxiety. Thanks to modern technology, he is able, and check this out, you lovely listeners, to work with people around the world via video chat and phone. So everybody, may I proffer, and that's a great word, proffer, isn't it? A warm English welcome via Zoom. To the other side of the proverbial pond in California, currently sitting in California, to the wonderful Dr. Rick Noyce. Hi, Rick. Hello, Jean-Paul. Thanks so much for having me. It's really marvellous to see you, and been a long, long while. <laughs> it has been a long while, and, you know, I preface this we're just saying you are a genuinely – everyone who knows you knows that you're a genuinely lovely and gentle guy. And as a wonderful flute player, it's – Seems to be you leave your ego parked at the at the door when you come out with your flute, and it's just this very peaceful, tranquil guy, which is unusual for a musician, isn't it? Wow, uh, wow, yeah, I think that could be unusual for me, a lot of <laughs> musicians.
1: <laughs> um, I, 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 it might even be unusual for me, but I'm so lovely that uh, so happy that you think so lovely of me. That's um, uh, that's that's really quite quite uh, quite astonishing to hear. I think honestly that uh, I probably carry along with me everything that everybody else does. But the interesting to me that your experience um, doesn't show those things when I'm
0: playing or I'm around. I'm I'm uh, I'm really grateful to to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we all have. We need to have a persona on the stage, and I do understand that. but sure. but for most of us as musicians, well, I don't class myself as a musician anymore. I just I'm just too old for that. I just make a noise on the tube and uh, you know, just hope <laughs> just hope one day that people people come in and listen. But no, seeing you play and seeing your the other your other wonderful members of the whole musician play, you just play with sort of complete freedom, but you have this ability to unlock a narrative. And the narrative isn't about you playing on the stage or each of you playing on the stage. So I'll talk about you now, you on the stage. But it's about the music that you're playing. Now, how do you manage to unlock yourself from that particular narrative? Wow. Um again thank you for that it's it's really extraordinary to hear i
1: think that unlocking that potential is a constant a constant work and that neither i or any of my colleagues sort of were were born with any special traits that allowed these things to to be that this is a a constant conversation that we're having with ourselves and um frankly with one another as support one of the things i would say i think there's so many different ways for us to go here but but one of the things i would i would say is having A a check-in system, a support system is is so essential for, I think, any human being, but uh, particularly anyone who's a performing artist of any kind. Even the best of us with the best training, I think, will often slip into old habits and old paradigms. And um, sometimes we just need that great friend to be able to say, Hey, look over here. That that that, that isn't not what you're potentially feeling right now, or what you're saying about yourself right now, isn't necessarily true. And if you can, you know, readjust. I, in coaching, we call that reframing. If you can reframe that to a place where you know you can find power and strength and assuredness in that, then that changes everything about your being it changes everything about you in that moment and therefore it changes everything about your performance you know what what you're standing on stage trying to portray so you know that idea of that that there's a narrative and it's not about you know showmanship or a persona per se yeah I think we do all have a persona on stage you know and and I think that that's born out of seeds of who we are. I don't actually think that, let, let me say it this way. I remember in my training, one of the things that really just shocked me into a new reality was the idea that in order for me to recognize something in someone else, you know, I mean, oh, they're a wonderful player or they're so kind or they're, you know, what, whatever attribute it might be which we often then put outside of us and onto those people right that that's them but in order for us to recognize anything like that in someone else it is because we ourselves embody that we are that if we weren't that ourselves it would be oblivious to us and someone else And I think that that really, really changed things for me, you know, that that if I can see someone who is telling a wonderful story through their playing or is touching people or is less concerned about, you know, I don't know playing it the right way whatever I'll use air quotes around the word right um if we can get outside of, of that and just start to you know and see that you know wow that's really touching that's moving the only reason I can recognize and and, and appreciate that is because I've got that and need to do the same and so then my day-to-day job I guess becomes reminding myself of that so that I'm I can bring that. Yeah, with my voice to stage does that
0: does that make any sense absolutely and it's it's beginning that process of understanding yourself which is actually very hard for a musician because you're trying desperately to understand the notes on the page and un- and understand how that you're supposed to be developing each note and the sound of each note and then the mm-hmm. The mathematical equation, which is the how the the mathematical mathematical equation of the dots on the page. Yeah. But but you you literally have to have an out of body experience, as you're saying, to be able to understand what you're trying to put over to the audience. So, yes, that came over really well.
1: Yeah, well, the things I you know I th- remember, you know, early on my teacher in my undergraduate he said something to me that was utterly shocking, and uh, I, frankly, as you know, my young eighteen year old self was quite offended. <laughs> um, but I really got this. It was after uh, preparing for I can't remember now what I remember afterwards being just so happy because I I got through it. And, you know, I had essentially, you know, played all the right notes at the right time. And I had played in tune and I had, you know, done the hairpins as the marked. And sort of talking with my teacher around that, saying, you know, how excited I was. He, he gave me a comeuppance and he, he said, you know, well, that's great, but don't go celebrate because you don't get to celebrate playing the right notes at the right time that's your that's the baseline that's the that's the the basic job <laughs> Do you know i love yeah, not- i love
0: that rick i love that don't celebrate if you play the right notes in the right time with the right hairpins that's quite a sterile potentially a sterile performance isn't it Exactly. And and this is precisely
1: what he was trying to impart, okay. you know, is that following the ink, following the dots and the squiggles and the lines is just simply reading like you would read a book with, without, you know, enveloping it and understanding it. It, it, it. The art comes when you put your voice in. The art comes when you change the spin of the, your vibrato, when you change the direction of something, when you have made up a, a story in your mind it goes along with that phrase of you know absolute music no program at all but this is the story i've said
0: that goes along with this and that's where the art comes so as a life coach when you and i, I like the word life coach because you're not just teaching or opening up you don't teach you open up parts the facets of the human person within When you're standing in front of a student that is struggling to interpret and is struggling to open up, how would you just get them to relax to enable the musicality to come through? Well, I think that there isn't necessarily one way to do that,
1: Jean-Paul. I agree, no, I agree. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think the idea of coach, which you brought a point to, I think is really also important because as life coaches, we are very rooted in that you are the expert in your life. Yep. It's not for me to tell you. It's not for me to describe to you a, a series of rules to follow. Mm-hmm. You know you. I am just here to guide you and let you observe and let you make some Informed decisions. So, with that sort of being the paradigm, then when I take this to my flute studio, when I take that there, I I work with my students in in trying to uncover for them what is happening. So, you know, it opens up a series of possibilities of what might be stopping them. Right? You know, are they in their head of nervousness, and if so, what is that nervousness being caused from? And so, you know, it is it is very different. So I don't mean to obfuscate that question so much, but I I have trouble maybe outlining a set of rules that I would follow, a set of recipe I'd follow with a student on that.
0: You know, I I realized that after I'd said it, that it was you know, there's a student standing on the stage and there's no way without asking them some very personal details in front of the whole audience would you then be able to change anything i realized that after i asked the question well
1: and oh, also this is marvelous though i think that that's one of the things that we as musicians uh, certainly those of us who teach and i particularly feel that this is is seriously in need in higher education, which is really why I became a life coach, was less about me spinning off into that career and making you know, a, a full career just coaching people, but it was to bring that paradigm shift to higher education. And that was really one of my big goals there. So I think that one of the things that uh, we all have probably experienced is that very close personal relationship we often can create with a primary instructor. Yes. Um, yes. That's different than, you know, I took history with you for last semester, you know, right. You know, I, I've got you every week, one-on-one for an hour for three, four, five years, mm-hmm. right. You know, I mean, so, so I think it, it does allow with full and conscious and choices and and conversation but it does allow a connection that then could have these questions be asked where you wouldn't you know do this in a master class per se right in front of people on, on a stage so I think that that is something that we create when it comes to like nervousness and stuff like that I'm just going to turn it around on me because you know it's hard for me to get into the head of every potential student out there right but I'll tell you even still to this day which is I think it's so marvelous that the way you started with uh, your impression of how it is that when you hear me play, I will tell you that the truth of the matter is to this day, I'm an absolute nervous wreck. Really? And, and walking out onto stage, I am absolutely terrified and horrified until I played my first four or five notes. And then I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> But you know, so I think that this, you know, it, and and I think that there's something really human about that. And I think, you know, that again, that kind of goes to it. It doesn't really necessarily matter how long we've been doing it or how well trained we are, even in all these ancillary things like life coaching and, you know, uh, uh, meditation and all these different uh, um, ideas. We are still going to click into our root being, and my root being honestly is to be actually kind of quiet and reserved even though that may not be what it is when I'm out with people I think that's where I go so the idea of walking out on stage and seeing 250 people out there and I'm about to play poolong you know I'm kind of (laughs) why me you know and then I have my techniques I go through one of the first things that I really do and I think of honestly is breathing and i think that breathing is you know just so essential we we talk about it in all different forms and certainly as wind players you know we're we're always talking about breathing the right way to breathe and you know to breathe all around to expand the body and the long, you know i take a more simplistic approach to it and i think of it as if i were coming into the end of a meditation and maybe in a group situation all came together and let out a terrific big ohm and that sound that is produced of course is healing but the act of creating that sound is actually what is healing (laughs) and it's the expulsion of concerted thoughtful air leaving us this is my wacky thought on this, but this is, this is how I, I think about that. So I really try to think about, and I talk to my students about the idea of what if, rather than that being associated with meditation, what if the act of playing your flute was your Aum? What if that expulsion of air was just as comforting and relaxing as Aum at the end of a meditation? And I try to remind myself of that. And usually by the second breath of a performance, I'm good.
0: (laughs) Because of that. That's a real mega reframe that isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a very different take. I get that.
1: And I'm certain that, you know, uh, this could bring up a lot of conversation to the contrary. But um, you know, listen, I think it works, at least it has for me. And I've watched it really work with a bunch of students. You know, they get to they get through that first phrase and maybe they're kind of rough and then they've got a measure or two out and you can just see them take a breath blow out, and then they take another breath to play. So, um, you know, I think there's something there that that's really simple to uh, put on. That concerted breathing reserved for a meditative, quiet space. Why can't that just be what we do all day long?
0: A performance versus experience. As a mature individual... I think I'm probably a lot older than you, Rick, but um, as mature individuals, (laughs) (laughs) you look hell of a lot younger than I do. It's the beard that does it on me. As you get older, you have lots of life experiences, a lot Hmm. of life experiences that you can draw on, providing you know the narrative, the story you're playing as a musician. How do you as a coach try and inform or I wouldn't say unlock because a lot of the experiences they wouldn't have had how hard is it to to get them to perform without that previous experience I'm only saying that is because when I was 18 I was asked by uh, one of my flute teachers my flute teacher at the time uh, George Crozier had I ever been in love and I said well don't really think so. I'm an 18 year old guy. I'm really not, don't think I've been in love. And he said, well, the day that you've been in love, you'll be able to play this piece properly. Wow. And the day you've had your love, your heart broken, then you'll be able to play other pieces that is about broken heartedness. It's not about a dot. The story is within the dots. Yeah. And I didn't really get it at the time, but I do get it now. So as a teacher, if you're playing, if, if some music is about heartbreak, you've got to be very careful, haven't you? Certainly as a coach, that you don't want to unlock something in the student that is going to remind them of a heartbreak in their life, do you?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, thank you for sharing that story because um, I hear interesting things in there. I don't necessarily disagree, like, you know, to have had ex- that experience in life of love or tremendous heartbreak, you know, really does then become applicable and something we can we can re- rely on when we go to play. I, I guess I, I immediately though, and no offense to your teacher, but I got really stuck on the idea then that to actually be able to play this piece was now somehow having to be stuck on the shelf and wait 20 years absolutely before you can actually do that. Yeah. I find that sad. Oh yes um Yeah, I think this is where I would diverge with your teacher. Where I agree that, you know, once you've been in love or had tremendous heartbreak or, or whatever, that that will inform and change your performance. I don't think that that means a young person can't somehow relate to those things because it's still about what we have in our experience. And even if we're only 18 or 20 years old, we've still had something that equaled love to us or something that equaled heartbreak to us. Now, what that might be when we're 40, of course is likely to be different, but that doesn't make it any less valid or any less um, uh, weighty in that young person's life.
0: Interesting. Rick. I I told this to a friend of mine years ago and he said, well, Most people would have experienced love by the time they're six, seven, eight, because you have the love of your parents. Um, But you also have a dog or a cat or a fish or a rabbit. So you can draw from, as you've just said, you can draw from other angles.
1: Yeah, the only way to interpret, you know, Undine, for instance, is through romantic love. Then I think a whole bunch of us are doomed, you know. (laughs) We're not gonna be able to say that for quite some time or perhaps ever, right? And so I think it's really important that we reframe a situation to think. And so I, you know, to kind of go back to your question, I, I think I seek that out in uh, working with students so that that I can find where they are. And I'm very blessed that I'm working with university age students. You know, so really my youngest are, you know, 18, 19. But uh, so that there's still a good bit of you know you still got the better part of two decades of life there that a lot has transpired and I find um interestingly I'll just use an example um that uh sometimes um in especially now I I had three three thoughts go through my head at the same time let me qualify this especially now two years after the beginning of the COVID pandemic and us being on high alert for this time, this is an exhausting way of living that we were never intended to be. We were not intended to be on fight or flight mode, you know, nonstop for for two years. So uh, I think that is impacting uh, students and that even, you know, what might not have been so upsetting early with big technical passage or you know something is, is now just surfacing very quickly as, as frustration and often tears <laughs> I, there's a big box of Kleenex on the piano in my studio because I, it's not uncommon for there to be tears and i you know and <laughs> I, I, not to frighten people off, it's not because, you know, Rick a mean old doctor who, you know, is going to make you all feel bad, but, but it, it, I think that in working with really tapping in and creating art, you've got to tap into you, and in tapping into you surfacing, what's going to surface then is all of the stuff, and right now we all have a lot of stuff i am very comfortable with someone in tears and and very comfortable with them going through their, their process i don't jump swoop in and jump in to try and make it all better I, I let them be in their emotion but while they're in that emotion i talk to them about that phrase or i talk to them about what's going on in this piece and say you know great uh, right now what you're doing here that's coming out in tears put that through your flute and you know it's tough it, it, you can't play flute very well while you're sobbing but but you know once you can kind of grab hold of that, at this, it's amazing what starts to come out of the students. And they, they have a new interpretation for what we would have in previous times say, you know, do you, have you ever been in love? That's how you should play your dean, right? <laughs> you know, now we've got a different,
0: a different connection to that. And um, I think that really has made a profound difference for a lot of my students, yeah so unlocking emotions yes i understand that's a very personal thing and it would take a very dedicated and understanding and experienced teacher to be able to manage that and it is a dangerous passage for anyone to go down in a teaching process if you don't know what you're going to do if a student does break down because that is quite an unusual occurrence because you what you don't want to do is get involved in the process of of why they've broken down. Yeah,
1: and and of course I think you know, obviously things have changed also mm. so very much. You know, from the old paradigm of you know the teacher and you know just play it and nope that's not yeah. right fix it. You know, not even necessarily telling you what to do right, just like yeah you know, fix it play it again and you know that kind of thing. You know, whatever I need help with my double tongue. Well just practice it, you know, I mean, those were kind of things that many of us have experienced in the past. And, and uh, so there was sort of a separation of, you know, we're here to get the business of of the work of music done. And while I don't necessarily disagree that that's what we're doing in a lesson, I think that that is uh, too constrained of an approach, and that we can't, as human beings, you know, get the work of art done, if we're in Turmoil, and until we understand even just briefly what that turmoil is, and then find a way to harness that and use that, then it's worth it. Then it's awesome, right? But I, I, uh, yeah, I think that uh, probably a lot of uh, teachers are uncomfortable with that conversation or don't feel equipped for this conversation. I don't know that I did, and that's partly why I then took the time to go become a certified life coach so that I would feel more
0: equipped. So. I think a big part of it is also an understanding from everybody that we're all flawed. We're not perfect. And we, we should never hold others up and aim to do what others do. Because, you know, you could look at a really brilliant flute player. You could look at one of, the, one of my favourites, Denis Burikov, just down the road from you. Absolutely stunning, stunning, stunning player. And you may want to be like Dennis, but you don't know how hard he's had to work to get there. You don't know what's going on in his life. It may look like it's all champagne and roses and picks the flute up and just plays like a god, but you don't know what's going on. So I think it's understanding your own flaws, isn't it? And then working with it and knowing that every performance is valid.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, you've hit on so many really important things there, J- John Paul. We don't necessarily, like you said, you, Dennis, who just uh, amazing. I, I mean, I, I'm blessed to live in L.A. and get to hear Dennis with regularity. It's just awe-inspiring. But, you know, as you said, you don't necessarily know what has happened to get him to that point and And that, you know, just absoluteness and, and you know abs you know it's it's so correct and so beautiful and so emotional and it's it's everything all in that package we we often can find that part of that conversation more easily than I think we can find the other side of that and I think the other side has just as much if uh, I might even argue more validity and that comes from uh, looking at a great person like Dennis and and not understanding you know what they might have done to do there, but what happens when we start looking at somebody who, quote-unquote, does, doesn't does have that same stature, right, who's not the principal of the Los Angeles Philharmonic and, and you know, and all of those kinds of, of bars that we have decided in society are very, very particularly meaningful. And and I think that that's where students, and particularly hobby, you know, amateur, you know, players who are playing for fun, really, really can find um, inspiration and movement in their lives is to say, you know, what I am going through, what I've done while, you know, doing all the other things in my life. has brought me to being able to play this like this and this is why this is valid and here's what I am offering and you know what the 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 people out there don't know what I'm going through either and and I think that we don't always have that opportunity to think like that we think only about the famous people and, and how, you know, perfect they are. I, again, not one of my favorite words, Um, but, but, you know, how perfect they are in their performances. And therefore I must be like this. I must emulate Dennis or, you know, whoever it is. And, and while those are beautiful you, you know, goals—they're uh, flawed in that they—they—they squelch our voice, they squelch our being, and we simply are trying to emulate someone else. And my mind right now goes to one of my favorite authors, and I know—I'm certain you know him very well—Don Miguel Ruiz and *The Four of the Absolutely, League
0: yeah.
1: You know, I mean, it's just where my mind goes as I'm talking about this, because, you know, you know, those basic four agreements, well, maybe maybe we shouldn't assume everybody knows um, what they are. But uh, the first one is um be impeccable with your word. Uh, don't take anything personally. Yep. Don't make assumptions and um always do your best. And there's actually one that I, I love, too, that people often don't know. That, uh, the book was, the series was later updated to have a fifth agreement. And that fifth agreement was to be skeptical, but be willing to listen. Isn't it amazing? And, you know, when you start to really think about that, you know, I mean, I'll just go all the way back to being impeccable with our word. You know, listen, this is huge. uh, Really, really, really huge. And when it comes to us as individuals and musicians and what we're trying to create, our word is everything. And I think that, again, often what happens is we have a, a, a somewhat narrow scope of what we're talking about when we're talking about our word our word starts in, between our ears is our thought, right? And that's just as powerful, even prior to you know making the air vibrate with our lips as we say the word, right? And so you know, speaking with integrity and saying only what it is that you really mean, you know, I mean that 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 would really put most of us in check if we really just tried to do that for one hour, let alone one day. Right. I mean, and, you know, listen, I, you and I have, a, I think a little bit of a personality similarity is there's a little bit of a self-deprecation that comes along with us. And I heard, you know, we heard you earlier about, you know, you just, you know, blow into the tube and you don't really consider yourself a musician any longer. And so, and, and I absolutely understand that. And I grew up too, to sort of, you know, think that self-deprecation was a, a humility and a kindness and a good way of being. And while that may be the case, it's also a lie. John Paul, you're one of the most brilliant musicians I know. You're a beautiful player. You know, and, and when we start to really think about our words, even something as simple as that, how our paradigm shifts, how our life shifts when we think about that, when I have to really grapple with the fact, that you know, I'm not a flute fraud, which, by the way, I lived for years and years and years and years. I have a very circuitous route to becoming a flutist. As a young kid, I started as a percussionist, as a drummer in, you know, fourth grade band. And and I did that for several years and honestly wasn't thrilled with it. I, I did great, but, you know, I was advancing quickly and playing a lot of rhythms and I wasn't, it wasn't, you know, inspiring me. So I asked my parents to switch instruments and I became an oboist. So in seventh grade, I started playing oboe. And I studied oboe for years and through high school in Boston, I was studying at New England Conservatory Extension Division, and I was doing all this oboe stuff and loving it. But, you know, I was also in high school and marching band and things, and you can't match with an oboe, so I needed to do something. So my band director gave me an alto saxophone, said, you know, go see what you can do. Well, I learned alto saxophone and utterly hated it. No offense to my sax friends out there, but it was just not, wasn't for me. Me. And so the following year, I over summer, I knew band camp was coming and marching season was coming again. And so I taught myself flute so that I could play flute and, and enjoy that. And I was to be an oboist. I played flute for fun. And in my time at, at heart, um, I had the most extraordinary Luca who literally changed my life as uh, he was my oboe teacher, literally changed my life in so many ways. But he was one of the only people who encouraged me to do all of the things that would speak to me musically, where everyone else was like, if you don't only play the oboe, eat, sleep, breathe and drink oboe, you will never be serious. You will never know what you're doing. You'll never succeed. That was the story I was getting from most, not my teacher. My teacher was like, you play flute for fun. So play flute and band. So, you know, I thought, well, if I'm lucky, I mean, these are all music majors. If I'm lucky, maybe I'll get to sit last chair flute in the you know the window ensemble, the band at, uh, at school. I, you know, I got uh, first flute, second chair. Self-taught player, right? So the flute fraud thing, completely living underneath my skin the whole time right and and then he also encouraged me to sing and i sang i sang all through college i still sing to to this day so you know all of that informed my musicianship all of that informed me as a player so you know fast forward years ahead oh ob- actually what brought me to california was oboe i got full scholarship to come study at usc and moved 3,000 plus <laughs> miles across the country in my little Volkswagen and came out to do my master's degree at USC. And I did it for only about a year. Didn't finish that degree because it wasn't resonating. It wasn't right. It, it, it just wasn't working. So then I went and did other things and you know survived and worked and stuff like that. And then it was just a couple of years after that, that I threw a very emotional conversation with my old roommate from back East you know, just talked about that. What I always wanted to do was flute. Always. And there was a series of environmental, you know, family paradigms um, that that caused me to be afraid to ask to do that. When I grew up, that was considered the instrument for young girls, and boys shouldn't play that. And that was something that I understood and various. Things I, w- I won't get into too much personal stuff, but I, it didn't allow me to feel comfortable asking to do that. I got away with it because you know I needed it for marching band, <laughs> but then i go back to oboe, and and right and and no one knew what an oboe was, so I was pretty safe there, right? You know that was my at least my you know my young my young brain. So flash forward all these years later, and I just you know through heartfelt thing realizing what I always wanted to do was be a flutist, but I hadn't even taken a lesson yet. I was self-taught. Now I played all around LA. I played in all the churches. I already played in the cathedral. You know, I mean I did all this kind of stuff, but it was, you know, I taught myself what to do. And I came at it like an oboe player. So my sound is different because I have a I have different thought about how you know the kind of sound i want to make and all of that so through all of that my my friend encouraged me to you know just go ahead be a flute player so i launched my first recital ever as a flute player just you know rented a church space hired an accompanist and put on my recital and that started my life as actually a flutist and it was uh, some years after that, that I decided it was time for me to go back to school and complete the degree. And um, that's where the next major teacher who utterly changed my life came into my life and I can't be more grateful. And that was Dave Shostak. And I owe, literally, I owe my life to David Shostak for being a, as a flutist. He didn't care about any of that circuitous route. He knew me from around town he knew my commitment and he said he was thrilled to bring me on as a student so I went back to school I'm now at a master's level with never having had a flute lesson (laughs) and I started studying with David and that that is you know that's my story you know doctorate and all that kind of stuff
0: this is this is new to me Rick you've come really from the the school of hard knocks haven't you? So can I ask one question then, because you're talking about flute frauders sure. in the previous year, imposter syndrome. Because you've yeah. come through the route you have, and I know lots of people, and that's not necessarily, I know people listening to this podcast aren't necessarily flute players, but are very good in their field, but yet they have imposter syndrome. Sure. So uh, coming through the route you have, yes, you've come through the flute route eventually, but you didn't start that way. How do you deal? Obviously you're going to have to go through your own, uh, experience with imposter syndrome when it sort of bubbles to the surface yeah wow um well i, I think that's very likely have like to go back a little earlier when
1: you know you were asking about nervousness and i said still to this day i walk out on stage still freaking out until i begin to play I'm quite certain that the seed of that is my own flute fraud or my own imposter syndrome, right? Um, because in the back of my head, I didn't start playing flute at four years uh, in fourth grade and I haven't played flute my whole life. And so I'm behind. And, you know, my I'm still at this point in my life, right? I'm behind and I don't make the same kind of sound that everybody else makes. And so that, you know, people going to interpret that as wrong. And And I've had people tell me, those things so that it kind of supported my worst fears right so that gave me the empirical evidence you know that that I wasn't good enough and I was a fraud so the managing of that though i think really comes down to really understanding who i am and what it is that i'm doing and for me and 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 you know unfortunately i think this is at least for me in my life this is an issue of time and age I, I, I didn't have this as a young person but for me it's really having to remind myself constantly that my unique voice is enough my interpretation of this piece is different than you know said flutist and that's is not only okay, that is actually wanted. And in getting to that point of understanding that, you know, because I play differently or, you know, don't have the glorious pedigree of maybe some other people who started when they were quite young, doesn't change or invalidate what I present. At the end of the day, my barometer is have i done my job and what i think my job is is to reach in grab your heart and give it a squeeze and if i've managed to do that even if it's you know not the perfect flute sound or it's you know i i took that foray you know two metronomic markings slower than you know the, the the people think or what whatever that might be i've I come away saying I've done my work and I've done what I am here to do is to move people to cause feelings and emotions to cause connection for people and ultimately that causes change and that causes change on our planet it might be micro but a lot of micro movements
0: become macro butterfly effect isn't it yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. I hope that's not too, you know, lofty of a dream. And the way I'm speaking it, that's really the only way I get through. And again, also tremendous support from friends. I'm not kidding you. It was just like a couple of weeks ago, I had a long conversation with my colleague Christopher Lee because (laughs) I was in a tough place and I wasn't so sure about something I had just put out there. And you know, having to talk with him through this and be reminded of what I just said, so. Like I said, I think for me, that comes back down to management, not eradication of that imposter syndrome or flute fraudiness, as I call it.
0: You know, The reason I ask that is I have it and a lot of the people, my close friends have it and they've got major jobs in the city of London and some days they just feel as though they don't know why they're there. So it happens to everybody and you're exactly right. It's the managing of it and knowing that A, you're doing your best, but B, that you have an input, you're changing something for the good. And it doesn't matter if you work in the bank. It doesn't matter if you're a musician. doesn't matter if you're a teacher or a nurse or a doctor. What you're doing is doing something for good. And yes. you're exactly right. Can I go off on a tangent, Rick? One thing that really its, it's a big thing for me. You wake up in the morning, right? And you've had, a, you've had a sleep. Well, obviously, you've had a sleep. You've just woken up. That's a bit daft of me to say that, wasn't it? <laughs> right, you go and look at yourself in the mirror. and You're not feeling great. What is your routine in the morning? right? So obviously you go and get a shower, whatever it is, but how do you start the day to put your, the rest of your day into a positive context? Because you are a positive person and you find ways of, even if there's a negativity there, you will reframe it. i use that word you started with, reframe it to actually get a positive from it. A lot of people find it really hard. And I'm not talking about someone that is uh, sort of medically depressed or clinically depressed but most of us in mundane lives, you get up and you're not feeling, sort of, not feeling it. But I get, right. the, I get the point. I get the feeling with you, you will try and find a step, a positive step, to sort of springboard you into the day. So it's my round roundabout question is, what do you do? Yeah, well, I think you're going
1: to. I hope you won't be disappointed because I think it's wholly unremarkable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, were wh- you to actually. Observe me getting up and in my morning. I think you'd probably laugh out loud. I literally, blurry-eyed, stumble to the kitchen and start the coffee. Yes, it, it, that, I mean it is. It is literally the first thing that I I do, and I've got the most glorious coffee maker that makes the most fabulous lattes and that is they must like that is my I must begin and it's so interesting that you say this because even my pets understand this routine (laughs) because um when, when I wake they follow me I have two little dogs and a cat and they all follow me out to the kitchen and sort of just hover while the machine is doing its thing and then we all walk to my den and sit down on the couch. And all three of them sort of saddle up, one's in my lap and one's on each side of me. They all, we all three saddle up together and we just sit and we just be. Uh-huh. And I literally don't speak or do or anything in particular for a good 20 to 25 minutes. I just be. I'm very blessed that our our beautiful little house here has a a wonderful little courtyard. So I I see out to the courtyard. So I see the morning sun coming in and it's hitting a plant in the courtyard. I can see the backyard from there. And it's, it's just really an incredible experience to just be and wake up and be with whatever it is that I'm experiencing for that morning and think about how I want to set my intentions. And it's not until I've actually just Being quiet, that I then worry about, you know, what shall be my agenda? What what's what's going to be my thought process today? What do I need to put into check? Maybe I'm feeling badly about today. I want to, you know, do something about. Uh, I just allow myself to be. And I suppose that can be dangerous because some days, you know, allowing myself to be means that I'm sad or I'm I'm uncomfortable, or things going on in life have me worried or concerned. And so rather than trying to immediately thrust that away, I let myself steep in that. If I'm sad, then okay, then let's be sad. And let's really know what it is to be sad for a while and understand that that's okay and that's informing me. And then I can, through that information, decide what it is I wish to do with it, that information. Okay, so I'm sad today.
0: Now, what would I like to do? How would I like my life to look? How would I like to impact others? For yeah. me, what's important with that, and I, I'm going to have to, be back, have to have you back on because you and I need to talk about being present and having time for yourself. And just being, Oh, I love because that. that, so it's a passion of mine, as, as as you know, and it's I know it's a passion of yours too. But that's a subject in itself. But what I like the fact is that you've brought up the subject of not batting emotion away, because that emotion is real, that emotion is genuine, and it's how you're feeling now. By pushing it away, you're in effect you're putting it in a pressure cooker, and it will come back at another time. In a way that you're sort of you're sitting with it you're not doing anything with it you're sitting with it and then you can just let it dissipate and move on so we we have another wonderful podcast to do you're an expert in this and i want to i want to get i want to learn mean, things
1: i want to learn things i'd be thrilled and absolutely honored yeah i mean I, I you know i could talk about this stuff all day i don't know that you know i have magic pill but i think that talking about it is in and of itself what we need i think although we are times have changed and we are so much better about this now than i think in in the not so distant past i think we still are up sometimes afraid of our emotions and we seek to not feel upset or not feel sad and and while I completely understand that it's uncomfortable listen it's uncomfortable by design (laughs) right you know I completely understand that but I don't think that the response ought to be
0: just ridding ourselves of it no that's my view as well people have therapy and it's all about understanding the emotion and not pushing it away because it is part of who you are at that moment and you can learn from it and you can heal from it. And yeah, this is a separate podcast, but say, I'd love to, I'd love to feed off you on this. Well, and just in sort
1: of the final point here, not only do we learn and heal from all of this, but this is the fodder of the art. I mean, this just, I mean, you just brought us back so artfully all the way to the beginning of this conversation, because this is what everyone's looking for. This, this is how we started this, is how do you interpret and how do we make it? Well, it's it's here. It's right here. It, I've got to be okay with being upset if I want to portray upset in music. I, I can't wait to the next time.
0: That's going to be brilliant. <laughs> and the last subject, what people won't know is that unusually for me, because I normally start with a small script, but I roughly know where I'm going on questions. What I'd like to finish on is affirmations and affirmations that you give yourself and the importance of affirmations in one's life. Because I don't think mm-hmm. people as as we do it enough to ourselves. We we like to be self-critical, and that self-critical mm-hmm. little person that sits on our shoulders and whispers in our ears. But yet we don't take time for affirmations. Mm. I must be honest and let you know that I've also had, I think much of my life is circuitous.
1: (laughs) And so I've had a circuitous route with affirmations as well, honestly. And I would tell you, initially the concept of affirmations was absolute hogwash to me. Mm -hmm. I took it to an extreme. I not only found them, perhaps silly or not useful i found them just utterly ridiculous and lies mm-hmm. and i couldn't in my young brain be with saying you know positive things about myself when i wasn't feeling those positive things were true i was just lying to myself and how could that possibly be helpful this is a bunch of garbage i now look back on that rick and say, "Oh, bless your heart." <laughs> it really, it really shows that you you didn't quite understand it, you didn't quite get it. I now feel differently about affirmations, and I think again, this comes down to speaking carefully, truth, and being conscious of being impeccable with your word. Again, right? So we want to really be thoughtful about what we say in affirmation. But the other thing for me around affirmation is really making certain that what it is that you're speaking is not I want, but is in effect I'm an I am. Because when we're wanting something, that by the very nature of that word is outside of us and distant from us and that's why my young self thought that this was hogwash and didn't make any sense because right now i'm mad i'm upset i you know i whatever you know i'm not being inspiring and i'm not an inspiring person right i mean i like think they were incongruous so for me affirmations are about stating the i am now it could be a desired i am but but really coming from the place of the I am. And how I look at doing that is interesting. Again, here we come full circle back to that idea of being able to recognize something in somebody else is only possible because I have that trait myself. I am that trait. So inside that, I really try to think about affirmations as what is possible outside of me? What is possible on the planet? What is possible for others? Because if inspiration and passionate expression is possible for a great flutist, then I want to be in the space of being that that is possible. And this is perhaps a little heady of a concept, but it's not that I want inspiration to be possible for people, but I'm actually a stand that inspiration is a thing and it's possible for us all. And that's part of my, you know, probably my morning, right? My quiet morning is, you know, sort of sitting in, you know, if I'm going to use those examples, you know, if I'm inspiration and passionate expression, if I, if I'm that, that that can be possible on the planet, then that is the affirmation of who I am. And then how can I go throughout my day being a negative Nancy if I'm the possibility that inspiration exists for people? Like that's an incongruency that actually kills off the negativity.
0: The I want is never something that should be created into a personal affirmation. I've, I've said it on a previous podcast. One of my I always end my meditations in the morning with one of the a great thing that Pema Chodron once said on a retreat, which was, I am not my thoughts. My thoughts are impermanent. And for me, <clears throat> because when our thoughts bubble up, sometimes we grab hold of that thought and then we sort of manifest on it. And then we go down this dead end, don't we, in this alley. And I like to know that if a thought bubbles up, then I am not necessarily that thought. And it all goes back to my affirmations are just like yours in that I never say I want. And interestingly, I came from exactly the same field with positive affirmations. I hated them because I am, you know, I'm English. I grew up in England (laughs) and then you get the great Tony Robbins. Yes, you can do it. Let's go for it. I can. I will. I'll do it. You can be anything you want if you want to be it. And the truth is you can't. You can just be what you can be, and it's no, it's, it doesn't harm, and it's very important that we aim high, but we shouldn't That's aim right. h- high enough that we end up with a negativity on what we're doing. So I end up exactly the same place as you. I love affirmations now because it's all to do that I am rather than I want. And also, if someone says, yeah, be positive, be positive, well, if, if I'm feeling crap. I can't be, can't be positive. So however many times I say be positive, be positive. Well, and, and there's probably some similarity because you, you're
1: English, but I'm, I'm from New England. So <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there are probably similarities. I, I, I mean, listen, some of my Boston accent sounds an awful lot like your English accent. It does, yes. um, That brings me also the idea that, you know, you said you can only be what you can be, Right. You know, and, you know, I know that might ruffle some feathers out there in the world, but again, you know, affirming and saying I can, I will fly is, you know, just not happening. You know, and I know that that seems like a, an extreme example, but taking that down one notch to say, you know, that I am a reasonable thing and 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 we have to be cautious with this i really i i understand that because reasonable is usually filled with a whole lot of pre-described limitations that aren't actually real so i get what tony robbins and other people are saying and i i agree but you know we want to shoot high but you want to go for being complete in your intention so I'm reminded of like, you know, the, the terrible words I made reference to earlier today that I hated is the word perfect, yep. because particularly we as musicians hate this. Again, understanding what that really means. I'm kind of an etymology kind of person. I, lo- I love the how things grow to be. But the, the root words of, of the word perfect, you know, really come from to do and completion. And when you put that together and understand, and I can't take credit for this. You know, one of my colleagues actually enlightened me to this, but I latched onto it because when you take the idea that to be perfect is simply to have done the thing fully, then you know what? I'm pretty darn perfect if I've gone out and I've played my recital and I've touched a couple of people, even if I messed up that run you know, and it really changes things. So when it comes to affirmations, you know, my affirmation is about, can this be done completely? Am I that inspiration can be in this world. Well, okay, yeah, it can be. And I, we have to see evidence around the world for that. So this is terrific. We're good. So just do it to your full potential. And it is perfect. And what your full capacity is when you're a you know 20-year-old music major might be different than when you're 45. But that doesn't negate that it was perfect when you did it at 20 as well.
0: What a perfect way to finish, because you know I've l- I learned so much talking to you, anyway, Rick. But uh, that last word about the word "perfect" in the etymology of that just it says it all, really. And you are going to come back on this. The word "being," if you can just be when you're on that stage, you can unlock so many jewels in your in your toolbox. But being it starts for, as you say when you're sat. Interesting. We are so similar. In the morning, when I let um, Mouse out, my Bedlington Terrier. When she comes back in, she sits on my lap and we just, she curls up and goes to sleep. And I, I just be, I am just there and I'm just conscious of what's going in, but I just choose not to hook it. So we do very, very similar things and that the importance of just being. To musician is so so important. So let's cover the, cover that on another one. love to I think, and we also I think talked a tiny little
1: bit about confidence, which I think is a whole other conversation to have too because I think that's wrapped up in a lot of what we were dancing around today. I think I think that's in there too and I'd, I'd love to have those conversations with you. this this couldn't have been more enlightening and more fun.
0: This was just brilliant. Oh I love Thank the idea. So I love the it's, no it's my pleasure oh my pleasure actually. No, for me the word confidence again, I you'll you'll be able to give the etymology of that. But for me, there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance and then how we you know, do we have to put a mask on to actually be a musician? So it's gonna be a great discussion, that Rick. I love it. I love it, Jean-Paul. Thank you so much. Oh <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. What's your weather like? Today it's gonna to be nice and sunny in LA, isn't it? As always.
1: Uh yes, it's it's to be lovely today in LA and it's sunny. <laughs>
0: Hasn't and it? Isn't it is always fabulous. in lovely LA? People won't be able to see me. I'm now sticking my tongue out. <laughs> <laughs> it's cold and wet here in the UK. <laughs>
1: yes, well, my, my own family does because they're still back in New England, so. <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> Oh, well, thank, thanks again, Rick, and uh, wishing you a beautiful day ahead and a musically fulfilling week.
1: Likewise. Thank you so much. This is just a fantastic opportunity. I'm, I'm utterly thrilled, and it was just great to talk with you. So
0: <laughs> so uh, many thanks to the fabulous Dr. Rick Noyce for joining me today and to you all for listening. May your week be musically perfect, and may your top E, yes, fourth octave E, be achievable and in tune. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye, <laughs> old goodbye. <laughs>